I also sincerely hope that we'll get a better balance and take more control of where our food comes from. We're at huge risk for everyone being food insecure, whether it's in disaster or it's from some, it doesn't have to be natural disaster. It can be political. It can be systemic disaster within the way something fails within our infrastructure in this country. We need a better balance of local, regional, and global food sources. I think we're beginning to have that discussion too. So I think there's promise. It's about keeping the discussion going and people having success and supporting small farmers. Uh, You can't do enough to do that. Go out there and get to know your small farmer, find out what their issues are, and find out how you can help them stay in business. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Hi there, and welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. In this bonus episode of Infinite Earth Radio, we share the first of three bonus clips on food systems from podcasts Mike Hancock's recorded last year for Equitable Opportunity Radio with our colleague Carl Schneebeck. The guest in today's clip personally embodies so many of the issues related to local food systems and equity. She started her life on a farm. She runs a large operation in Oregon designed to alleviate food insecurity. And years ago, as a young single mother, she faced food insecurity up close and personal. Today's guest is Sharon Thornberry, uh, and she is the community food systems manager for the Oregon Food Bank. Uh, Sharon has been a grassroots organizer, trainer, and advocate for community food systems, rural communities, and anti-hunger work in Oregon since 1986, and has been working at the Oregon Food Bank in various capacities since 1998. Uh, Sharon, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Sharon, you know, this local food and food systems and uh, dealing with issues of food inequity are are really a hot topic, and we've talked to a lot of great guests. I, I think unlike many of our other guests, you're a little different in that you seem to have been around food production all of your life. It seems like you actually grew up on a farm. Is that true? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. I was born to an 80-acre farm, Hilltop Farm, in central Iowa, little town of Maxwell, in 1953. Lived there. We lived there until I was five or six years old. My dad, at the time, they were telling farmers to get big or get out. And my father was basically fo- forced out of farming continued to work and manage farms in Iowa and North Carolina practically until uh, until about 10 years before he he passed away. So I've been around farming all of my life. And you've been involved in things like 4-H and the Future Farmers of America? I grew up in 4-H. I was one of the first female members of Future Farmers of America back in the the 60s. They didn't allow girls (laughs) until the year I joined. And I feel like I grew up in extension and still continue through my lifetime to be very involved with extension work in all of the states where I've lived. And you mentioned that, you know, the agricultural policy at the time kind of drove your your father out of the the farming business. If if that hadn't happened, do you think you would have been in the family farming business uh, at some point? 
probably. It wasn't common for girls to get in the family farming business at the time I graduated from high school, but I think I probably would have bucked the system and my father would have been there to support me. That's great. It's unfortunate that you lost that opportunity. Um, but, yes. But it's great that your father was so supportive. Well, it sounds like those formative experiences, I'm sure, uh, have helped to, to understand some of the, the challenges and the things that, that farmers today are facing. One other thing that when we want to mention is that unlike most of our other guests, you have also experienced food insecurity in a very real and personal way. I wonder if you'd be willing to share with our audience that part of your life and what it was like and how it's informed the work that you do today. Um, I have no problem talking about that. When I first started doing this work, it was, uh, was a touchy subject. I didn't know if I could say to other people, hey, I've been there. But now I talk about it often. 30 plus years ago, I found myself in a position in Texas. My husband had gotten, he was a Vietnam veteran. He'd gotten out of the military. He had PTSD. Of course, we didn't know what that was then in terms of veterans, Vietnam vets, and literally couldn't function. And I found myself in a position where there was a day when I didn't have any food for my kids and my husband was off on an oil drilling rig. And I had to take my children and go to a neighbor's house and say, I don't have food and I don't know what to do. And that woman, God bless her, took me to a food stamp office in Humble, Texas. And I applied for food stamps. But at that point, you didn't get food stamps immediately. It took three to five days to get them. The caseworker said, well, but but we've got this brand new thing we call a food pantry or a food shelf. And we'll go get you some food. And we she showed me, we walked down to the food pantry and it was locked and nobody knew where the key was. So that was my first glimpse of a food pantry was uh, food. You could look through the window and see all kinds of food, but the door was locked. My neighbor gave me $5, woman I didn't know at all, and took me to a grocery store. And I bought enough food to last my kids for the next three days. And that was hot dogs and macaroni and cheese and a can of canned milk and some green peas. And that's what they ate for three days until the food stamps came. That's a powerful story. Thanks. Thank you for sharing that with us, Sharon. Yeah, I think it's really important to share those stories. I think that, you know, uh, somehow in America today, we look down upon people who are struggling. And, and you're a person who grew up on a farm. You worked hard all your life. You were a mother, your husband was working, and clearly you've worked all your life, right? And you found yourself in this situation. And, and there should be no shame in that. There should be no feeling that somehow that that's somebody's fault that they're in that situation. So it's, it's great that you're willing to tell that story. I can imagine how difficult it is to tell, but we really appreciate you sharing that story. Thank you. So now we fast forward and you're the community food systems manager of the Oregon Food Banks Network. And I would assume that that experience that you had at that part of your life really makes you um, amazing at this job. But can you explain to our audience what the Oregon Food Bank's network is and what do you do as the community food systems manager? So I actually work for the Oregon Food Bank. The Oregon Food Bank network is our statewide network of regional agencies. There are, there are 16 of those or 17 of those and four branches that are part of Oregon Food Bank. So that's what the network is. I actually work for Oregon Food Bank. Food, our community food systems program is about visioning a time when there's food security and, and community food security 
for all of the communities that we serve throughout Oregon and Southwest Washington. And I would say that we also share that vision in helping communities across the country through our expertise in a number of ways. We also have found that there were a lot of community food assessments being done through the USDA initiatives and other things, but most of them were being done in urban areas. And we knew we needed to paint a picture of rural communities. So the second part of what we do is community food assessments in cooperation with an AmeriCorps program called RARE at the University of Oregon. So we have AmeriCorps volunteers who go into rural counties and rural regions and do what we call grassroots community food assessments. And we've completed uh, almost 90% of the counties in Oregon. As far as I know, it's the only comprehensive statewide community food assessment project, but we've learned a lot through those. And the communities have learned a lot about themselves because our key is making sure that communities are able to be self-determined in what they want their food system to look like. The third piece of what we do in community food systems is networking and building a network and a communities of practice around grassroots community food security work and sharing resources, providing resources, helping people with advice on fundraising, on organizational development, all, all the things that it takes to make organizations run. And we particularly focus on rural and we have other staff that focus on the urban areas in Portland, but we're increasingly crossing over between urban and rural because that urban-rural divide is extremely important. And I manage those programs. It sounds like a, a really large job. It's a, it's a big task. It's a large job, and there are basically three of us that do it. Wow. I, I, you know, one of the things that you mentioned just now, Sharon, and I, I don't think this is semantics at all. I think it's a, an important distinction is I, I've noticed you're talking about food security rather than feeding the hungry, as I think a, a lot of people when they think about food banks or people who are in need of food is, you know, that, that that's solving the problem. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that distinction and what it means to provide food security for the people of Oregon. Who, who, how many of those people are you serving? Who are they? What are some of the stories that they have that put them in the position that they're in um, where they're looking for a different system that will help them in this regard? Right. So the first thing I would say to you, and I've said this over many times over the years, I've worked, like you said, for 30 years in this. I've actually even run a local food pantry in the little town that I live in. But what we will never end hunger with food boxes. It's a systemic issue. We have to think bigger than just handing out food. We, for the fourth year in a row, we have distributed over a million food boxes in Oregon through our network. And yet people are still food insecure and in some cases hungry. We have to take a systemic approach. Number one, we work on the issues that are most directly connected to the food system. You know, like rural access, what's happening to the rural grocery store? Do you have a way, you know, are there school meals? We have 18 school districts in Oregon that don't have school meals because they're so tiny that they can't support a federal nutrition program. They don't have the, the wherewithal to do that. What happens to senior citizens in a community as they've owned property all their life and they've been there, but then the economic base of that community leaves and with that leaves things like the grocery store 
things are grocery stores gone. Um, We have a lot of people in Oregon that can easily live 60 to 100 miles from a supermarket. Those are the kinds of issues we're looking at and we're saying, how do we solve those issues? What do we need to do? How do we make sure that there's produce? And, and even where you've got rural stores, just as in urban areas, small stores aren't as likely to have produce, which is the healthiest food. So how do we solve those problems? How do we make the local connections? But we can't make those. What we have to do is facilitate communities to solve their own problems and to make the connections they need to make and to think about what they can do for themselves to provide food security in their communities. So there are a lot of issues and they differ by community. There's not one solution. And sometimes the solutions differ by community. The the resources that are available in a community differ. We have communities that are high in elevation. It's hard to produce food there. So what do we do? So those are the kinds of things we're looking at and how we're looking for solutions. Do you think people are less in tune to the problem of rural hunger than they are to issues of urban hunger or insecurity, food insecurity? Excuse me. I think it depends on on who the person is. I mean, I've had people say I've had legislators say to me, well, I eat oatmeal all the time. They could just get a 50 pound bag of oatmeal and that would and they wouldn't be hungry. And it's kind of like. Yeah, but that's not nutrition. That's filling your stomach (laughs) as good a food as oatmeal is. I think there's a vision that it's easy if you live in the country to provide for yourself. But we have two thirds of this state is desert. So you got to have water. So you often have to pay for water to water a garden. And you also have to have the skills and you have to actually have a place to do that. So we've been working on solutions to those problems and thinking through and then sharing from community to community about how we resolve those problems. But the statistics say rural hunger is not as bad as urban hunger. I think people in rural communities are less likely to admit they're hungry too, or food insecure. There's a lot of pride that goes with living in rural communities. Sharon, I know a significant percentage of, we've heard statistics of one out of every four of the people who are hungry in America are children. And it seems like such an alarming uh, statistic. And, and I'm wondering, how did the richest country in the world get to this point? And what are the consequences of having so many children and families who are, are facing food insecurity? And what can be done about that challenge? How did we get here? We're not paying attention. I mean, we don't, there aren't equal opportunities for everybody. And there's a lot of deniers that say that all of this stuff is made up, but I'm here to tell you it's not made up. We don't think about the challenges of access. People with small children have, they're most, the most financially insecure. Salaries have not kept up with the cost of living in this country. And it's a complex question, but raising, raising wages and providing benefits. When I found myself in a situation where I finally left my husband in Texas and moved to North Carolina. I got a job with a major retail grocery chain that's still in business. And my job at that point provided me with full insurance coverage. I didn't have to pay anything for it. Um, I had regular raises. I was represented by a union, which was unusual in North Carolina. And my salary was enough to live on. It was enough to provide for myself and my children. 
I never did get any child support, so I was alone in providing for my kids. But it was enough to do that. And I stayed in that job for six years, and it got me with my head above water. And I had a car, not a brand new one, but I had a car to drive. And I had a place to live. I bought a, an older mobile home, but it gave me a place to live. I didn't really totally draw myself out of that poverty situation until I got married again and had another partner and really got two incomes to support our household. But I'm telling you that a parent who finds themselves in my situation today could not go out and get a job that paid them a little above minimum wage with regular raises and provided benefits. And so we're leaving a lot of kids in a really bad place because it's impossible for their parents to have a living wage, especially in rural communities. And it's not all the fault of the employers. There are the employers, small employers, and I've been a a small business person too. You struggle. And so there's a whole systemic thing that we need to look at and figure out how we solve it as a country. You, You said so many great things there. One of the things you said, you said, at the beginning was that I think you said that a lot of people think that the the problem is made up, that it, it isn't as big a problem as people are suggesting it is. Why, why do you think it is that they think the problem is made up? They just don't want to believe that this is possible in our country. They just believe that we're better and that we shouldn't, you know, and they also believe that there's a whole faction of folks in this country that believe if you're in that situation, you must have done something wrong. Yeah, I think that I think that the you know, my sense is that that stems from how geographically segmented we are. So I think a lot of folks live in a community where most of the people in their community are not hungry. And the people who are hungry or the people who are food insecure or working those lower wage jobs, they tend to live with other people. So the people who you know, don't face those conditions aren't really even engaging and working too much with people who are facing those problems. And I think that that exacerbates the, the, whole, the whole situation. And they send their kids to private schools so they don't see it in their schools. They don't, their kids don't or they live in a neighborhood where there's not going to be low income kids going to the school. So they aren't going to see that. And their kids don't suffer because of the kid who can't pay attention. You know, it doesn't affect their children. Yeah. And there's, you know, this other kind of weird dynamic to the, this whole situation is Carl was talking about the, the number of children in this country that are, that are food insecure or, or are hungry. You know, we've seen number, I've seen numbers that suggest that one out of every two children in America will need food assistance at some point in their life. And we live in a society in which if we talk about one child who's hungry, people will show up with truckloads of food. But, right. but somehow when we talk about, you know, there's 10 million children or 20 million, whatever the number is, somehow people are not alarmed by that. They're not, somehow that is not moving people to demand systemic change uh, tomorrow. But they would demand it for the individual child. So it's just kind of this right. very weird dynamic. I think it's about the numbers. I think the numbers, when the numbers get so big, that you can't see how many kids would sit on a school bus even. Or when the cost gets so big that it's just unfathomable to your personal checkbook, you can't comprehend it. And therefore, you shut it off. 
I really do believe that. People glaze over with the numbers. And so they can relate to the one child and they'll do it for the one child or they'll do for the one senior citizen. We have a huge problem coming with senior hunger. With the baby boomers aging and not being able to work. And another thing that we have, another issue that we have that's contributing to all of this is baby boomers are going to have to work longer. And they're not going to give up those good paying jobs as quickly. And therefore, younger folks can't move into those jobs. And that's another issue in terms of progression in, in people getting to the point that they can really afford to live. And the systemic effect of that's going to be that long term down the road, they'll be more food insecure when they get to be seniors, too. And econ- they'll be more economically insecure. So and we haven't even begun. We're just beginning to, to have the discussion about senior hunger in the food banking world and what we think is coming at us. But it's something we got to think about. So, Sharon, you're, I feel like you're describing so many, you know, as, as you look at this from a systemic viewpoint, so many reinforcing feedback loops moving us in in directions that I don't I think most of us don't want to go um, certainly people who care about having food equity in our country what are the ways that you're interrupting this what are the ways that um, you know how do you how, how do you how do you find leverage points in this system to, to try to change what's going on so I think I really do believe that the best leverage points are at the community level If we can get enough people at the community level recognizing, understanding, and addressing the problem, and then becoming advocates to carry their local message to the powers that be, and you build that across the country, just think the food banks across this country, there are hundreds of Feeding America food banks. There are thousands, tens of thousands of food pantries, food shelves, whatever you call them, across this country. They all have volunteers. If those folks had taken the hours they've taken, even a fraction of the hours they've taken of handing out food and been saying to the powers that be, to Congress, to their state senators, to to their state legislators, even to their county commissioners, this is wrong. We have to do this differently. What do you think the picture would be? I think we'd I think we'd be in a different space. Yeah. An enormous effort in handing out food in this country without a plan. I mean, the thing is, food banking really started at St. Mary's in Arizona because there was waste in the dumpsters and there were hungry people. And and so if we get the food, if we don't have the grocery stores put the food in the dumpsters and then we feed it to hungry people, we're solving a problem. But there was no master plan or thought about What's this long-term effect of taking stuff that groceries, with grocery stores would normally put in the dumpster and feeding it to people in need? And there was no thought about the dignity involved in that transaction or the loss of dignity that was involved in that transaction. And now look at us. We're an industry. You're, you're, just, you're illuminating so many great things uh, for me, even on a personal level. Um, my family and, and I, have, we've volunteered at our local food bank uh, several times. And I think part of what is so appealing about that for us is it's a very tangible thing to do. And now I, you're forcing me to, to think about the larger system at play in that and also making me think that there are uh, likely opportunities for our local food bank to um, encourage us to do more than just put food in boxes, but also to to think about that larger system and how we might influence it 
when we go home from an experience like that. So it's not just a getting the food to the people thing, but a, but a larger systemic viewpoint. So thank you for, for talking and, about that. And what I would tell you is Oregon Food Bank was one of the first food banks in the country to have a public policy advocacy department. Mm-hmm. And now when we have volunteers in our building, they're, they are signing a postcard, they're signing a petition, they're being given information about some issue that we need their voice on. That's great. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a compelling hook to go in and volunteer. And I think if, if there's opportunities for people to do more than that, and they're given that when they're there, it's, um, I, I love that. I, I really appreciate that Oregon Food Bank is doing that. It's, it's, it's great. Yeah, I, th- I think the other thing that Sharon pointed out, Carl, that I think is, you know, really thought provoking is, you know, it is great that we created this, I think you use Sharon's word, industry of food banks. But that really was didn't solve the problem, right? It, it's a little bit like our, you know, we see we're seeing a lot of uh, problems with the American diet. The people are eating food that's not healthy. It's making them unhealthy. So we build this enormous medical system to deal with that problem rather than deal with the roots of the problem. So, you know, we're, we, it's great that we created this this food industry, but we sh- this food bank industry, but we really should have spent a whole lot more time thinking about why is it that people are hungry and, and what's wrong with our economy that people who work every day can't feed themselves and their family. And I, I think that that's something that everybody should be stepping back and thinking about and really questioning, how did we get to this place? How did the richest country in the world get to a place where a significant number of its percentage of its population consistently lives in poverty and goes hungry or is food insecure in spite of the fact that they either work full-time or are willing to work full-time? And, um, you know, we should be demanding answers from, from our political system on both sides of the aisle for this, this whole situation. So, Sharon, how can our audience learn more about your work and how can they be supportive? So they can learn more about our work at Oregon Food Bank uh, from our website, OregonFoodBank.org, and look for community food systems or community food programming. Or I also have a chapter in the Place at the Table book that went with the documentary Place at the Table. And if even though it's a little dated, if Place at the Table, if you've not seen Place at the Table, I highly recommend that you get it from whatever film service that you use and watch place at the table it's it's an enlightening documentary you can support these programs financially another great organization that i've been on the board of for six years and probably will go back on the board of is bread for the world Um, and their website has an amazing amount of information and uh, can educate people about the issues of hunger both here and around the world. So I recommend that resource. And, and actually, my work's been highlighted in a couple of their documents. So there are places there. So we appreciate anything that people are willing to do. If you want to know, I haven't talked about FEAST, which is our community organizing program that we do. If people are interested in FEAST, you can also find that on our website. Excellent. So Sharon, if you were to future cast, as it were, and think 20 to 30 years ahead from now, what would you hope our food system would look like or, or what, what, you know, what is the kind of vision you have for how it could look uh, given the work that you're doing and, and where we are today? So here in Oregon, we just hosted a, a national conference called Closing the Hunger Gap, Cultivating Food Justice. And we had 
almost 500 people here from 273 agencies, 41 states. It was amazing. And three Canadian provinces, too. Those folks are talking about change. They're talking about it wasn't just food bankers. It was food bankers and partner organizations and academics and all kinds of folks. They're saying we have to do it differently. Um, I think that we have a discussion started in this country about doing things differently and about thinking more creatively about the role of food banks um, and their voice in this. I also think that we have a lot of communities are saying, wait a minute, we've been stepped on far too much and other people planned for us. We're going to figure this out ourselves. I also sincerely hope that we'll get a better balance and take more control of where our food comes from. We're at huge risk for everyone being food insecure, whether it's in disaster or it's from some, it doesn't have to be natural disaster. It can be political. It can be systemic disaster within the way something fails within our infrastructure in this country. We need a better balance of local, regional, and global food sources. I think we're beginning to have that discussion too. So I think there's promise. It's about keeping the discussion going and people having success and supporting small farmers. Uh, You can't do enough to do that. Go out there and get to know your small farmer, find out what their issues are, and find out how you can help them stay in business. Sharon, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. You've been a fantastic guest. We appreciate so much your willingness to share your story, and we also appreciate your willingness to share your wisdom. You're very thoughtful. You're fully engaged in these issues and working very hard. So in addition, we really appreciate um, all that you're doing for people who are food insecure. And just thank you. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you. And we want to thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Our next bonus episode looks at the environmental and economic impacts of food waste and how addressing food waste can help address food insecurity. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about SKIO, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.